Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Jeff Bluestone. Jeff is the president and CEO of South San Francisco-based Sonoma Biotherapeutics. Jeff has a long, distinguished history as an immunology researcher at the University of Chicago and UCSF. He learned over the years how to enlarge his impact as well by coordinating groups of scientists as an administrator at the Immune Tolerance Network, UCSF, and the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy. Jeff took the startup plunge a couple years ago to build Sonoma. Many listeners of this show are quite familiar with the CAR T-cell engineering revolution that has brought forth some exciting new T-cell therapies for cancer. Jeff saw this and knew that some of the same tools and concepts that could be brought to bear for a different purpose at Sonoma. Instead of engineering T-cells to attack cancer cells, Sonoma is seeking to use the tools to engineer T-regulatory cells to help bring the immune system into a more balanced state so it doesn't attack healthy cells or self. The gist of the idea is to make engineered T-cells that better tolerate the patient's ordinary healthy tissues and tamping down chronic autoimmune and inflammatory diseases. Listeners can learn more about the company from a February 2020 article that I wrote on Timmerman Report about Sonoma's Series A financing and founding vision. Jeff is a brilliant scientific entrepreneur, a good conversationalist, and this uh, interview provides a glimpse into how he thinks about using the tools of today's biology to do things for autoimmune and inflammatory disease that would have been inconceivable a couple of decades ago. Now, a word from the sponsor of the long run, AnswerThink. Today's sponsor, AnswerThink, has been consistently recognized by SAP, one of the largest enterprise software companies, as a top business partner for delivering and implementing SAP solutions for small and mid-sized life science companies. Their SAP certified solutions designed for the life science industry are pre-configured, rapidly deployable, and address fundamental business and IT challenges, such as integrating your business applications, delivering validated reporting, increasing your speed to market, support for global rollouts, as well as delivering a fully compliant solution that meets FDA's strict standards. Explore how AnswerThink can streamline your business processes to ensure growth. Visit AnswerThink.com Timmerman and get a copy of their ebook, Top 3 Barriers to Growth for Life Science Organizations. That's AnswerThink.com Timmerman. And have you heard of Absci? Absci is all about creating new possibilities in the realm of protein-based therapeutics. What does this mean? Absci has a fundamentally different approach to drug discovery. It designs and develops next-gen biologics of any modality, from antibodies to T-cell engagers to completely novel protein scaffolds, including a futuristic format it calls bionic proteins. Because Absci conducts its screens in its scalable production cell line, it collapses several steps of biologics discovery into one integrated efficient process. Absci also has a unique computational antibody and antigen discovery approach for isolating fully human antibodies from disease tissues and using these antibodies to identify novel drug targets. Absci does all this with a powerful combination of deep learning AI and synthetic biology technologies. Absci is already helping some of the best partners in biopharma translate their ideas into drugs. Check them out at absci.com and absci.ai. Please join me and Jeff Bluestone on The Long Run. Jeff Bluestone, welcome to The Long Run. Great to be here. So, Jeff, I had the pleasure to speak with you uh, when you announced your Series A for Sonoma Biotherapeutics. So um, I, I always like having that as a reference point for, you know, years later uh, when, you know, you see how a company grows and evolves. And, and I think you've, you've done some things uh, that we can talk about here. But um, uh, it, it's uh, at that time you, you said um, – I remember this because I quoted it. It said, this is hard. It's risky. It's got all that early biotech craze kind of stuff. 
But if I felt I was going to do it, I needed to go all in. Um, and I, I wonder, you know, how that feels like hearing that read back to you a couple years later. Was, was that the, the right call? I keep saying the same thing. Um, no, I, it was the right call. Uh, as you know, because we've actually known each other for even longer than the Series A, um, I've been in this business uh, many decades of trying to help people and patients really uh, with diseases that are just untreatable. And uh, my ability now to take things further than I was ever able to take them in academia has really changed my perspective, both in terms of the, what's possible, but also how hard it is. And it's helped me to reflect on the value um, at each stage in the discovery effort. You know, if there's no basic science, nothing else happens. But once you have that initial creative step, then being able to move it forward efficiently. I say often that in academia, it's it's really largely about ideas and, and creativity. In industry, you have to build in execution because you can have the greatest ideas in the world. If you're not able to execute, then you don't get something that's going to help change people's lives. So it's been a challenge. It's been a uh, roller coaster. It's been exciting. And hopefully it'll be successful. Well, these are the kind of great stories I like to dig into in the long run. Uh, the show is called that for a reason. <laughs> so let, let, let's rewind all the way back to your beginnings, because I actually don't know some of this. Um, where'd you grow up, Jeff? And how did you get interested in science in the first place? Yeah, so I was um, I was born and raised. Um, well, I was actually born in Oklahoma, but we don't count that because my father was in the Army. But I was raised largely in New Jersey and New York, um, mostly in New Jersey. Uh, and um, as a young kid, like a lot of kids, I had um, all the right kind of toys from a rock collection to a science kit with a with a little bit of with a microscope. And I used to do bad things to small insects and like looking at them under the microscope. And so always felt that science was uh, a great Great discipline for me. I was. Um, How old were you when when you were doing this, Jeff? Oh, I was in grammar school, right? So I was, I don't know, ten years old, eleven years old. Um, I used to go into New York um, later on by myself to the Museum of Natural History, which is one of the greatest museums in the in the world. And I would just love staying in the rock collection rooms. I mean, they had a whole floor with rocks on them, and I loved doing that kind of stuff. So for me, science, it was very clear from the start that that was going to be a space. And in fact, I always joked about the fact that one of the good things about going into science is I wouldn't have to write a lot. And I hated to write. Of course, 400 plus papers later, I didn't didn't perceive that correctly. But um, well, but what you're describing here is natural curiosity that all kids have. And you actually it sounds like you had some adults around you who encouraged this, nurtured this, and, and you were able to run with it. Yeah, my parents were great. My father ended up running a dry cleaner, not necessarily um, what you might expect for somebody who graduated as a chemical engineer, but he always had, as well as my mother, a, a really high value point in terms of uh, academics and and being curious and asking questions and uh, and and my my family writ large was just always supportive of everything I did. You know, of course in in a, in a good Jewish family, being a doctor was kind of an important uh, milestone. I never quite went to become a physician, but at least I, I, uh, I did go to graduate school. And, and I frankly um, don't, you know, I, I don't know where I would have been had I not had their support. So you go to Rutgers. Um, how'd you end up there? Yeah. So, you know, my family, as I said, my dad was a dry cleaner. My mom didn't work. So money was not our strong point in my family. We lived, uh, we lived on, on, you know, small salaries and small money. And so for me, the opportunity to go to a state school was, was inevitable. And Rutgers was a great school. I went to the, to the ag school at the time. It's now called Cook College, but I went to the ag school because science was was just uh, what the focus of the school was. And it was 20 minutes from where I grew up. And uh, and I was able to, to, I think my tuition was something like $189 a semester, something like that. Um, and it was a great opportunity. I, I, I still, I'm a big fan of state schools. I think they are great places for good educations. 
Um, and it really opened up doors for me, um, you know, as I as I progressed in my career. Well, I'm a proud alumnus of the University of Wisconsin, and uh, I I used to walk down the Lakeshore path that was named after Howard Temin, Nobel laureate. Um, you know, so I, a lot of respect for. Well, I used um, to be in the. I, I used to do my research in the Weissman Institute. <laughs> so you know, equally you know, prestigious individual. Yeah, yeah. So how did you settle on biology? Uh, this is the 1970s, I guess. Um, what was going on that that kind of lit your spark for biology? Yeah, yeah. So I wasn't uh, I wasn't great at chemistry, at organic chemistry, um, and. Physics to me was a very um, ethereal. I was there, as you say, in the early 70s when new types of education were being tested out. Uh, and in physics, it was like it's, it was a do-it-yourself education. And I didn't find that ex- very interesting. But I did a senior project in a lab of a guy named Bob Cousins, Robert Cousins, who was working in nutri- nutritional biology at, uh, at now Cook College. And and um, I just loved that senior research project. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life, but I got so enamored. It turned out he was working on calmodulin. I didn't know at the time it was just a calcium binding protein. Um, he went on to become an, you know, a National Academy of Sciences member, went to Florida, and he was incredible. I remember years later, he came to a seminar I gave at University of Florida and was so cool to see him there. And, um, and he just put all all of the all of this spark in me. He was just an amazing guy and he was supportive of young students who were inquisitive like I was. So how did you end up specializing in immunology? Because I you know I'm looking at your CV and I happen to uh, have interviewed folks contemporaries of yours. You know, first it was microbiology because I I mean there weren't a lot of departments actually for immunology. It was sort of a subspecialty within microbiology. I mean, you're really there at the beginning. Yeah, it was interesting. I actually, after I graduated school, I, again, I didn't know exactly what field of biology I wanted to go into. And so I actually took a, um, uh, a position as a graduate student at Rutgers in their virology program. So as you talk about, I was actually started off in virology and I was totally enamored with molecular biology and the idea that we could actually start understanding people's DNA and genomes. And my project in that was pretty boring. I was working on a virus called Mangovirus, which is the mouse equivalent of polio. And my job was to figure out how many adenosines there were on the tail of the messenger RNA of Mangovirus, which turned out to be 16. But But I found it was rather boring, to be frank. And my father had a friend of his, a fraternity brother, who was at um, a place called Sloan Kettering Cancer Institute. And he said, you know, why don't you look at Sloan Kettering as maybe a summer project or something? And so I went and I met with um, this, this, this guy and his name was Bob Good, who happened to be running Sloan Kettering at the time and was an incredible immunologist. And the idea that you could actually think about treating cancer with the immune system in 1976 was a little bit in the what we would call the early days. But Bob Good was an incredible scientist. He had discovered what what where B cells are made. Uh, it turned out in the bursa in chickens, and he discovered the bubble boy, the cause of of, of immunodeficiency, and and it was applying this to cancer. And I just thought this is just the most amazing thing. And so I left Rutgers and started my PhD um, at, at Cornell, which was Sloan Kettering was a division of it, working in Bob Good's group, because I just thought this system, this immune system that was able to actually detect something foreign in a cancer cell, this would be just, would, would be incredible. And so I really came into immunology from the side door. You're describing what sounds pretty basic, like basic science um, actually became a gateway of sorts to these, you know, these bigger questions in, in applied science and human health where, where we're going to get to. Absolutely. And in fact, my my the reason I got into the graduate program there was is that I was studying a mouse virus. And it turned out that there were mouse viruses, viruses that caused mouse tumors. And they thought, ah, Bluestone's going to know something about virology. And so maybe he'll be helpful in this mouse 
um, cancer program. And it really was all basic science. I mean, there was, we, there was so little we knew. Um, the immune system was still a lot of phenomenology. Cancer was a big black box. We had no idea what the, what the targets would be. And so I felt like I was in this new space that, um, that, 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 that very few people were in. And Sloan Kettering was just the center of that universe with some hundred immunologists at the Institute at the time working on various aspects of the immune system. And I felt like I was in such a special place and everybody there knew there was way more we needed to learn before we could ever think about treating patients. And so it felt, it felt very basic. So you get um, the bug here. You decide to become a scientist. Like a, uh, you get on that track to become a you know tenure track faculty and all that. We can fast forward a little bit now. I think you spend the bulk of your career at UCSF. What would you say were the the big questions that really animated your research agenda in those years? Yeah, so I think it's it would be helpful to go back at least one step at the University of Chicago because I did okay. spend 13 years there. And that was really transformational for me because I came there from the NIH after a short stint there and was able to really apply a lot of the immunology that I had learned to the cancer field there. And it was when we really started to study things like checkpoint inhibitors like CTLA-4, which we studied in the mid nineties. And that was the transformation for me to now start thinking that some of the basic principles that we had learned in cancer and immune system could be translated to autoimmune disease. And I got very involved in diabetes work um, at the University of Chicago. Most, most prominently in trying to study islet transplantation um, to, to treat the disease. And the University um, of California offered me a position to run the diabetes center. And I thought that would be a great way to align my basic knowledge of immunology and how to, how to the yin yang of immunology, how to, how to think about it as a way to break immune tolerance to help destroy a cancer, but how to instate immune tolerance to be able to um, engage to prevent autoimmune diseases. And, and it was coincident with me founding the Immune Tolerance Network. So it all came together. I could Actually, be in charge of a diabetes center. I could do my work in diabetes and other autoimmune diseases. And so UCSF provided me that platform um, to, to do that. Okay, so I didn't mean to skip over your early career there at, UC, at Chicago, but I know a lot, a lot of action happened at UCSF. But maybe we could pause just briefly here and explain that concept of immune tolerance for people who are not super familiar. This, what is this and how does it go awry in a couple different disease states? Yeah, so the immune system uh, is just this incredible organ of the body that's designed to balance to be balanced, right? We have to recognize everything that's foreign, whether it's a virus or a bacteria, or if you put a kidney from one person into somebody else, that all has to be balancing act because you don't want you know, the infection to take hold. So the immune system builds a set of armamentarium to go after things that are foreign. Unfortunately, it makes mistakes. And the mistakes are that it's thinking sometimes that it sees something foreign and starts attacking self. And that's what autoimmune diseases are, or it destroys a kidney transplant when you don't want it to. And so that balancing act always intrigued me. And that was what I was studying at the NIH when I was there in the National Cancer Institute was immune tolerance, how to enable it and break it. And so when I got to Chicago, we started for the first time understanding what were the, the molecular basis of this discrimination between self and non-self? And that led to a discovery of really some of the most important pathways that we now utilize in all fields. We learned that in order for an immune cell, specifically a T cell to get activated, it needed to recognize what was foreign and get a booster signal called the co-stimulatory signal. But in the process, that often broke tolerance and you started recognizing things you didn't want to recognize. So one of the first, um, I would say, important discoveries I made while in Chicago was developing a drug that's actually now on the market 
to treat um, a number of autoimmune uh, diseases um, called uh, abatacept and belatacept. And these drugs block that co-stimulatory signal. So T cells, instead of getting turned on when they shouldn't be, get turned off. And so that idea of turning on and turning off, on the one hand, we were talking about stopping the gas from getting turned on. And then that led me to the discovery of CTLA-4 as a break that turned off the immune system when you didn't want it to work. And so those Chicago days were so much uh, fun because everything we learned was unexpected and serendipitous. Every time I think I knew um, what, what, to, what to expect, we got the opposite result. And it was great early days with Jim Allison and Craig Thompson and Carl June and all the people that really were studying these, um, these co-stimulatory pathways and checkpoint pathways. And it was, it was pretty exciting. But it gets back to this idea that once we started understanding the rules once we started understanding that the immune system was this on-off um, yin-yang, then we could start shifting it. Where we wanted to get more, more uh, breaking of tolerance for cancer, we knew how to do that. When we wanted to start introducing things that would shut down the immune response in type 1 diabetes, we could do that. And it was that was a really exciting time for really understanding what the rules were about how the immune system does this self-non-self discrimination. So there's all this basic science going on, figuring out um, the rules, as you say, for how the immune system um, works. And But it took a long time to be applied. Um, in the field of cancer, it, it really um, uh, is well known. CTLA-4, you mentioned, is the target of the drug um, now marketed by Bristol-Myers, um, Yervoy. Um, it, it, it's, um, it's one of those checkpoint inhibitors that this... Uh, this breaking mechanism that tumors actually use to shield themselves from that T cell attack. And if you can sort of disable that, the, the, um, the immune system can now attack the tumors. This is like foundational. This is a huge, like it's the birth of a whole new industry. Um, how, I mean, what was it like to see that really come to fruition years later? Yeah. <laughs> Right. I think you're you're emphasizing it was both exciting and frustrating, right? Because that discovery we made was in 1994. Yeah. And it wasn't until uh, the late 2000s, 2011, something like that, that your boy got approved. So it took a long time from that basic science to discovery to, to the drug and, and a lot of perseverance, perseverance by, by a lot of people. So in that sense, it was frustrating, but it was also exciting because it was really changing, it was changing a field and changing the way we think about cancer um, treatments. And in that sense, it was exciting, if nothing else, to be the fly on the wall. But as I said, this frustration always stuck with me, which is why one day I decided if I'm gonna see something that I've been involved in creating, make it all the way, maybe I've gotta get involved in it myself. So all this cancer work is happening. You mentioned some of the people who are well known for their role in this, um, but your a, a lot of your work, as you mentioned, was in um, diabetes and uh, the other side of the coin. Uh, and could you say a little bit about founding this immune tolerance network? Um, why did you do that? Why was that important? Yeah, so this was a great opportunity, a unique opportunity that I had. Again, we're at the border of University of Chicago and UCSF in 1999, and I was approached by, um, by basically Tony Fauci at the time, a name now that everybody knows, um, about his idea to create this network, to be able to study immune tolerance, because he in the early days of what we would now call precision medicine, he really felt that if we could understand better how to treat the immune system for autoimmunity, that would impact our ability to treat the immune system for asthma and allergy and organ transplantation. And what would it be like to bring all these disciplines together around the table? Because at the time, people were very disease specific. And he thought, well, maybe we need to be platform specific. So I was fortunate. I got this contract from NIAID to start this network, brought together, you know, several hundred people. And we sat around the table and said, okay, how can we bring novel drugs to, to, to induce tolerance in people with these various diseases? And it was so cool to have the transplant, kidney transplant guys sitting across the table from the asthma guys 
talking about their experiences so that we could think of novel ways to, to do that. And then having the resources to be able to implement it. And remember the thing about immune tolerance, and now this is a 1999 recall, is that it was antithetical to a lot of drug development because we were thinking of doing things to patients that you would do once and never have to treat the patient again. Not a good economic commercial market is a single drug treatment for whatever, um, two weeks or whatever it would be. And so it was up to us to do it because we weren't gonna get pharma to jump in and do that right away. Now, I think it's a obviously a big, big field and a lot of people are doing great things in it. But some of the early work we did, we were out there way beyond what, what companies were willing to invest in. A word from the sponsor of the long run, AnswerThink. Today's sponsor, AnswerThink, has been consistently recognized by SAP, one of the largest enterprise software companies, as a top business partner for delivering and implementing SAP solutions for small and mid-sized life science companies. Their SAP certified solutions designed for the life science industry are pre-configured, rapidly deployable, and address fundamental business and IT challenges, such as integrating your business applications, delivering validated reporting, increasing your speed to market, support for global rollouts, as well as delivering a fully compliant solution that meets FDA's strict standards. Explore how AnswerThink can streamline your business processes to ensure growth. Visit answerthink.com Timmerman and get a copy of their ebook, Top 3 Barriers to Growth for Life Science Organizations. That's answerthink.com slash Timmerman. And have you heard of Absci? Absci is all about creating new possibilities in the realm of protein-based therapeutics. What does this mean? Absci has a fundamentally different approach to drug discovery. It designs and develops next-gen biologics of any modality, from antibodies to T-cell engagers to completely novel protein scaffolds, including a futuristic format it calls bionic proteins. Because Absci conducts its screens in its scalable production cell line, it collapses several steps of biologics discovery into one integrated efficient process. Absci also has a unique computational antibody and antigen discovery approach for isolating fully human antibodies from disease tissues and using these antibodies to identify novel drug targets. Absci does all this with a powerful combination of deep learning AI and synthetic biology technologies. Absci is already helping some of the best partners in biopharma translate their ideas into drugs. Check them out at absci.com and absci.ai. So you did this work kind of herding all these cats uh, with different specialties of, of or different types of applications of immunology. And at the same time, I, I guess in these years, you, you, you begin to uh, get involved in academic administration there at UCSF. I don't want to talk about like every step, but I know you worked for a while there with Sue Desmond Hellman, a uh, previous guest on the show when she was chancellor. What, what would you say, like, what did you learn or gain f- in terms of your appreciation for your career that, that helps you today um, in, um, in, in getting involved in academic institution leadership? Yeah, yeah, that's it's it's always important to think about both sides of my academic life because I think what I learned from running the Immune Tolerance Network to running um, aspects of the university's research portfolio is that in an invaluable lesson about teams and the value of collaboration. Um, I remember that when we started the Parker Institute, we had this mantra, which was kick-ass science and collaborate like hell. Because if you put those two things together, great scientists doing great investigative research with a concept of collaboration. And collaboration doesn't mean big teams with hundreds of people. It could be just two people in a hallway talking about an idea they wanna work on together. If you can bring collaboration, if you can have the reward system to help people value collaboration, then you can get a lot more done. And so for me, what I learned in administration is the, op, the, the, the tools to help bring people together, 
to help herd the cats, to help create um, a whole greater than the sum of the parts. I could come up with a couple of other of these yeah, aphorisms, but uh, I, I really felt that that's what I learned in administration, the value of that. The other thing I learned in administration, um, which built out from my science, is don't, don't be risk adverse. In science, if, if one out of 10 experiments work, you know, you're excited. In administration, if anything fails, you feel lousy. So administration should be innovative as well. It should think about how do you take risks in designing new models and designing new ways to think about how to fund research, how to partner with companies, how to work with investigators. And I was lucky at UCSF, which is a very entrepreneurial environment, in being able to think about how do we bring um, academics together more effectively with industry and the Bay Area and Silicon Valley was just the perfect place to be able to do that. And so Sue coming from Genentech was a great partner for that because she understood the value of larger companies. And I appreciated the value of academia. And together, I think we were able to do some really interesting new models of how to work across. So collaboration is working across science working with different people, working in different fields like asthma and kidney transplant. Collaboration is working with companies in a different way. And so if there's one thing in my life that I think I've been able to um, value most, there are all the different ways in which we can work better if we work together. It is a really important point. And this, you know, just hearing you give that answer reminds me, I think when we first met, which would have been, you know, at Genentech Hall, the buyer's auditorium at UCSF, right? Where, you know, I would organize like biotech community events and, you know, you would come there and represent UCSF and like interact with people in the biotech community and figure out how, you know, you might be able to work together. Um, It's it's how it works on on a continuum between science and industry. Um, So um, now you mentioned earlier some of the, the exciting stuff in cancer immunotherapy. So this really took off. I think you said, you know, the Yervoy data was around 2011, but I think, you know, the the PD-1s came a little bit later, more like 2013, 2014. So now all of a sudden this field of cancer immunotherapy is really exploding and cell therapy too, with, with, with CAR-Ts. Uh, could, could you say a little bit about like what um, was so exciting about that, that initial wave of of uh, of cell therapy and and how you thought about how you might apply it in you know the other side of the coin with um, with autoimmunity. Yeah, sure, sure. So um, first of all, it, it, for me, it was totally transformational, as it was for many people, thinking about how you could um, give a therapy that didn't just prolong somebody's life three months, four months, six months. But for a subset of people, and with your boy, it was 10 or 11%, with PD-1, it's 40% of melanoma, but would actually um, have people live forever, um, cancer-free. And that was, a, that was a transformation. So cell therapy was even more powerful in that regard. It was taking people with a blood cancer, um, and as I've already mentioned, a good friends, Carl June is a very close friend of mine, and taking these patients that would be dead within three weeks and giving them this cell therapy once, and the cancer just disappears, it melts away. And everything we had learned about the immune system's ability to go out, recognize and, and destroy from you know, having the right receptor to recognize the antigen, to having this co-stimulation, CD28 was the molecule that Carl exploited and 41BB to be able to do this was extraordinary. So for me, the idea of watching cell therapy gain gain this kind of um, prominence was really exciting. And I remember writing a review article with Wendell Lim and um, and Michael Fishbach in, in the early 2012, 13, and saying, this is gonna be the new pillar of medicine that we are going to, in 30 years, look back on cell therapy the way we now look back on monoclonal antibodies when they were first developed as being a new types of medicine. And so it was hard to watch that and not want to be in the middle of it. Now, as it had turned out, starting in about 2003, 2004, we had already started thinking about how we could make 
cell therapy work in um, autoimmune diseases. And it was a different cell. It was a regulatory T cell, but we had animal data that suggested that exactly what was being done in cancer could be done in autoimmune disease. We could take a cell out of an animal, expand it and put it back in with a specificity and shut down autoimmune disease. So that, that study coincided um, with the first uh, human studies with CTLA, with uh, CAR T cells. So that by the time, you know, things were, 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 when we were getting drugs actually out there on the market, we already really had a good idea about how we might be able to exploit cell therapy in the autoimmune setting. And that was something that I was excited to try out. Why do you think this took a few years before it, it um, you know, started to coalesce into companies like yours? Yeah. So, so cancer is different, right? Cancer is a place where people die, unfortunately, very regularly. And the, the therapies that we try to conceive for them can be more risky because the alternatives are just not very uh, good. If you have type one diabetes, you know, you're living on insulin every day. It's a, it's a horrible thing to have to do, but you're not going to die. If, if you have, you know, other autoimmune diseases, they're likely not going to be to kill you. And so the path that both scientists, clinicians, and the FDA takes to developing therapies in those diseases are slower. They're more cautious. People don't want to take high risk if the patient um, has a productive life that they can they can live. So I think that's part of the reason why it's taken longer. I think the other reason why it's taken longer is that um, as scientists, we were we were a little further behind. We've only started appreciating the power of these small subsets of cells to control tolerance. Um, in, in the last decade and a half or so, whereas the, the T effector cell killer things that the cancer guys use, you know, it's been 20, 25 years that they've been used in animal models. So I think the science was further behind. And I think that the pathway to develop things were, were harder. Well, and it's probably worth mentioning uh, that, you know, those first generation cell therapies for cancer, uh, you know, while extraordinarily effective in many cases, so they did come with some serious side effects as well with the cytokine release uh, syndrome, this massive inflammatory response to the quick killing of the tumors, some neurotoxicity as well. And it, those are the kind of effects that um, would have been considered uh, maybe a little too much toxicity. To, to move ahead in, in some of these other indications, like for autoimmunity? Yeah, abs absolutely. In fact, the, the, one of the first companies I helped found, the first that I was a founder of with Carl June and Craig Thompson was a company called Excite in Seattle um, to do cell therapy. And we were thinking about HIV and we're thinking of cancer. And everyone said, yeah, that's fine, but no autoimmune disease, no organ transplant, it's too dangerous. And I remember that was in 1996. It was a very clear to us that we had to start in diseases where, so when you had some toxicity, which these cell therapies clearly had toxicity, you were going into patients that were otherwise really doomed to, to, to succumb to their disease. That's a company where I think you got to know Bob Nelson of Arch Venture Partners as well. So <laughs> you're, you're a little too ahead of the curve, maybe, in, in that case. I actually met Bob at University of Chicago. He oh. was um, he was an MBA student there, and he came to my office one day and said, I need somebody to teach me immunology. I think it's going to be important. And could you teach me some immunology? And so I've known Bob for 40 years, 35, 40 years, yeah. Oh, wow. That's a fun little story. Um, <laughs> so... Um, you mentioned you made a, a stop there at the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy. You know, and in some ways, conceptually, that um, was seeking to be a, a convener, a connector. So you were well positioned. You had done this sort of thing before at Immune Tolerance Network. Um, but cancer immunotherapy is like really rocking and rolling in these years. But then you make that move um, a couple years ago now to, to, you know, go all in, as I alluded to at the top of the show, on cell therapy for autoimmunity, which kind of brings us back full circle. Could you describe your, your thought process then? Like, what were you looking at scientifically? And, and, um, and why did you think you needed to, you know, have your hands on the steering wheel? Yeah, yeah. So, so a lot of it is serendipity and, and 
fortunate. We, we are lucky in my world right now. We've grown up in a time of great revolution in genetics and genetic engineering. And one of the challenges that were always true in the 2000s when we first started our programs, clinical programs, is we, we had a hard time figuring out how do we manipulate the cells? How do we get them to do what they what we want them to do when? And then fortunately, we've had Jennifer Doudna and, and Fang and others helping us with CRISPR and how to introduce genes. We've had gene editing technologies. We've had cars that were developed. And so it became almost a a, a an execution and engineering challenge, not just a science challenge, because I think we knew 10 years ago that the science was there. We just didn't know how to execute. And my feeling at the time now, we're four or five years ago, then Sasha Rudensky and I decided to start this company. Um, we sat there and we said, you know, we know the science. Sasha had discovered FOXP3 with Fred Ramsdell, our CSO. They knew the science the science, but now we had a chance to execute. And the question was, how do we go about really doing that? Do we do it in an academic setting? Do we do it when try to get some small grants and things like that? Or do we start to go uh, go outside and think about doing it? And Sasha was going to stay at Sloan Kettering, which he still is and stuff. But I convinced Fred to join me from, um, from the Parker Institute. And, and we started this company because we really felt that this was the time and the place we had the tools in the toolbox, we had the science in the bank, and I think we had the unmet medical need, um, which was out there to help develop drugs to help people that definitely needed new ways to think about medicine. Those tools that you've referred to are so enabling, and I know there's lots and lots of groups around the world that are thinking about all different ways to use them, whether it's engineering NK cells for cancer, macrophage cells for cancer. There's a whole bunch of competing groups now that are looking at Treg cells like you uh, for autoimmunity. Can you say just a little bit about like what is the idea for Sonoma Biotherapeutics? What what is the the product or products that you have in mind? What would they look like? So I think it all starts with the cell. Um, we are committed um, to having the best in class cell which means that it's durable, that it lasts as long as we need it to last, that it's specific, that it gets to the right place and sees the, the right thing, and that it's stable, that it actually will survive as a Treg for the life of the cell and not um, turn into uh, something that it shouldn't be. And so that's where it all starts, creating that. And that's been really what my basic science research was at UCSF. And it's what I've been um, focused on in when I was running my lab. Then you use the toolbox, right? So once you know you've got this great cell to work with, now you can plug and play. Do I want to put in a car? Do I want to put in a TCR? If I'm going to put in a car, what do I want it to recognize? Do I want it to recognize an eyelid antigen in the pancreas? Do I want it to recognize an, uh, something in the joint of an RA patient? Do I want it to recognize something in the brain? And so that becomes um, a plug and play more um, approach, but you start with the cell. And so where I think this company is positioned well is we've been putting these cells into people for 12 years at UCSF. And so we know what a great cell looks like. This is science, but it's also art. It's knowing what the right conditions are to grow these cells, to isolate these cells, to make sure that the cells you make are going to work and be durable. And that's really what the core of the company is about. Are these personalized cell therapies or off the shelf? So right now they're all personalized. Um, I think that off the shelf is an interesting idea. We're very interested in thinking about it, but remember we're in a chronic disease setting, right? When someone has RA, they always have RA. This is not like a cancer where hopefully you can destroy it and if the cell disappears, the cancer is gone. We're always going to have this low-level inflammation. So we need to have a therapy that really is going to last a long time. And we're still at the early days of allogeneic off-the-shelf to know that these cells will survive a long time when you put them into somebody who's foreign, Remember, my, my upbringing is, is that the immune system is incredibly good at detecting something that's foreign. Well, you put a cell from one person into another, that immune system is going to see it as foreign. And we need to, I think, do a lot more to make sure that those cells are um, protected from the immune system of the person they go into. 
That said, I mean, there are great companies out there that are really focused on aloe. We're keeping track of it. And I would imagine at some point in the future, for lots of reasons, we may be thinking about off the shelf. And the reasons are not just simply economic. Um, economics, of course, matters. But some of the diseases we would want to treat are diseases where you need to get the, the drug in immediately when the disease occurs. Take something like COVID, right? So we now have a clinical trial at UCSF that, I, that was started by my colleagues at UCSF testing Tregs in COVID patients. Well, you can't have a patient come in, say it's going to take a couple of weeks to grow up your cells and then we'll inject them back in you. You need to have an off-the-shelf product for that or stroke. So I think the future for, for off-the-shelf is important is there, and it's there more than the economics. It's also the types of diseases we might be able to treat if we had an off-the-shelf product. Well, that's something we'll think about for the future. But for now, you're talking about personalized cells. So these are so. Could you walk me through kind of the the process here? You you have a patient with a, an autoimmune condition. You you take a blood draw and you isolate the key cells. In this case, T regs. Now, what's been the problem historically? Like you've gotten um, kind of like a heterogeneous mix of cells before, or like how do you how do you look at these cells to make sure you've got just the right ones? Yeah, it's a great, great, great question. So there, the, the, one of the biggest breakthroughs that Fred and Sasha uh, and Shimon Sakaguchi did in 2001 to, or so was to really identify a factor, transcription factor called FOXP3, which identified these cells uniquely as Tregs. Great marker, great great identifier for these cells. The problem is it's an intranuclear protein and you can't isolate cells based on an intranuclear protein because if you plug holes in the cell, the cell's going to die. So what we needed to do is to come up with a constellation of markers that were on the cell surface that we could use to isolate these cells and know that we had Tregs. And we came up with a, with a, a set of three markers then when we put them together, CD4, CD25, and CD127, and isolated the cells that greater than 95% of these cells would be FOXP3 positive. So in essence, they were the cell we were looking for. And our whole process starts with that selection methodology that allows us to get a very highly purified population of Tregs out of the arm of a patient with one of these diseases. Okay, so this is happening in the lab. And then, then you do some other modifications, which you alluded to earlier. You, you go to work with your CRISPR tools or your, your other things. What, what kinds of modifications are you seeking to make? Yeah, so we're, we're, we're going to do the obvious things that are going to be necessary, I think, to have a, um, an effective drug. We need to have a specificity receptor. So we've decided in our initial programs to use CARs. Um, for that, that recognize a protein in the, in, in our case, in RA, in the joint of a patient. And we have other programs um, that we're moving forward on as well. We then want to put a tag in the cell, something that we can use if we need to eliminate the cell for any reason. So we put a, 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 a novel tag on the cell surface so that if we had to get rid of the cell, we can. And then we're developing a number of approaches to try to modify the cells so that they have greater durability as well as greater survivability in the patient, especially in settings where there's um, um, a lack of growth factors and other things that Tregs need to survive. So when you say get rid of that cell, that that's commonly called like a kill switch or suicide switch, where like if um, you know the it did the opposite. If the cell caused some side effects you didn't want, you could just like administer some you know ordinary small molecule, say that like shuts off the cells. Well, in our case, we're working with a cell surface protein, so we treat with an approved monoclonal antibody that kills off the cell and gets rid of them. Okay, okay, um, so. So there's several modifications, it sounds like, that you're going to make, um, you know, ex vivo before that cell is ready to be reinfused back into the patient. Correct. And um, so then is this designed to be a one shot treatment, do you think? Or is there potential for redosing over time? 
Yeah, so the initial studies that we did, um, both in diabetes and lupus um, and a couple of other clinical settings, have suggested that the cells that we work with um, can be really long-lived. At least a year out, we still find a significant number of these cells. So it's possible we can end up with a quite durable population that's going to have quite a bit of longevity. But we are aware of the fact that maybe you're going to need a second treatment. Um, and so we've also developed a cryopreservation technology so that we can freeze these cells down and then later on take them out and reinfuse if we need to later on. I think that um, makes the most sense from both an economic perspective as well as from a therapeutic ease of therapy perspective, being able to have these cells frozen away for multiple doses. Now, I don't think that we're thinking about, you know, many, 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 many doses, but maybe, you know, as you try to get this patient back into remission, into immune tolerance setting, it may take one or two or three doses over the first couple of years, but I doubt we're thinking of doing anything more than that. I think that's something that would intuitively make a lot of sense to patients, you know, that these are my cells and, um, you know, it's nice to have some in the bank um, in in case I need a second or third dose, whether it wanes or um, maybe gives me partial efficacy. Um, I I can see that. But now you also have a a preconditioning regimen. Is that correct? Yeah. So the other thing which people forget and, and, and as they're developing drugs is that the reason cancer therapies are successful in part is because of this combination idea, right? That, that it's really hard to imagine a single drug being the magic bullet, even though that's all we look at in autoimmune disease all the time is a one drug wonder. Um, and so what, from the very beginning, we thought, let's think, let's step back and think about the science because it really is the science. And most autoimmune diseases are caused because you have effector T cells that are killing the tissue, you don't want them to kill it. And you have Tregs that aren't working as well as they should be working to shut down those effector T cells. So from the very beginning, we said, if you're gonna reset this rheostat, this immune balancing act, if you're gonna reset it, then you should be thinking about both eliminating the effector cells that are causing the damage. At the same time, you're emboldened, you're empowering these regulatory cells to shut things down. And so we decided at the beginning to develop a second treatment, uh, what we call our conditioning or debulking treatment, um, which will allow us to give a single dose or a small number of doses and eliminate a large number of effector cells so that when we put our Tregs in, that they have a much better chance of accomplishing their goal because the effector cells aren't fighting against them. And animal models, it's very clear that that works and it works extremely well. And so from the very beginning, we've had both programs and we're going into the clinic, hopefully um, at the beginning of 2022 with our um, biologic, which is our debulking uh, conditioning agent, and then hopefully show safety there. And that'll allow us to then combine it with our Treg therapy in settings in which the effector T cells are there. And if we got rid of them, we'd have give our Tregs a better chance of being permanently tolerogenic. I got it. So the, the debulking agent, this is actually, what is it? It's not a chemotherapy, like a blunt instrument. It's a, it's a more targeted biologic? It is. It actually was uh, based on a product that actually was approved and on the market um, for a while uh, for the treatment of psoriasis called lefacept. And what it is, is it's a molecule that binds to the cell surface of activated effector cells, highly activated effector cells, and depletes them, gets rid of them, kills them. Um, and so your majority of your T cells are unaffected. Your naive T cells are fine. Your Tregs are fine. It's only these activated effectors that get eliminated. And so we, that, that, anti, that if it's a soluble molecule was taken off the market. Um, and we think we, we've made a better one now. And so um, we're moving forward with that because we know already a lot of the biology around it and think we can match the, um, this efficacy and increase it of what the original Lefisep had and use it as a combination. And how do you stage this? Do you give this one first and uh, and then wait a week or something before the patient comes in to get their reinfused Treg cells? 
Yeah, that's going to be the, exactly the kind of approach. It truly is a conditioning agent. So we will give it, wait, wait till it clears, um, and then give the T-Rigs. Okay. Okay. And what kind of data do you have so far to support this um, combo treatment regimen in your first couple of indications? Yeah. So the animal data is quite clear in almost every setting in which we have used Tregs um, to induce tolerance, whether it's in animal models of type one diabetes or in organ transplant settings where you're trying to block rejection of a of an organ a tissue. Um, if you do this short-term depletive therapy, um, your efficacy with the Tregs is much improved. And so that's been the, the, the bulk of the, of the animal data. The human data is very clear based on Olefisept. We haven't been in humans yet with our molecule, but the human data with Olefisept or other molecules that I've been involved in developing like teplizumab, the anti-CD3 that's being used in type 1 diabetes, have also shown efficacy in having an, an effector cell depleting capability. So the clinical data says is that if you can get rid of effector cells while maintaining your Tregs, that can have a good clinical outcome. So when we put those two things together, we think we have a, a good combination to work with. When do you think you'll be uh, ready to go to the clinic with your, uh, your lead program? Yeah, so our 5301 program, the um, debulking agent, um, will be in the clinic in Q1 of 2022. Uh, and our first Treg product, we're currently targeting Q3 of 2022. Okay, okay. Now, I know you raised a, a large Series B a couple months ago. Um, could you talk just a little bit about like what that enables you to do with kind of building the company operations out uh, and doing things that you, uh, you know, really couldn't do in academia? Yeah, no, it's been a tremendous, uh, I think it's a tremendous opportunity for us to really do what I really dream of being able to do, which is to really come full circle and test, is this a drug that's going to work in people, which is what we really want to do. And it's going to do that because of a couple of things. One is it's going to allow us to build several additional clinical programs in other indications. So we'll have a couple of different approaches to being able to test it out, not just in rheumatoid arthritis, but having programs in other diseases as well. It'll allow us to build our own manufacturing facility. I told you the, 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 the thing about cell therapy is the, the cell is the, the, the drug and the process is the cell. And so being able to have our own manufacturing facility that we can use to make sure that we're making the best cell that we can um, is going to be critical. And this funding allows us to build our own manufacturing um, facility. And the third thing it allows us to do is to really start investigating which type of genetic modifications and manipulations can we make to even improve the cell beyond its natural capabilities, including repair factors, so that when you put the cell in, it starts producing the factor that'll repair joints or repair um, neurons or whatever the disease indication, being able to test whether genetic engineering approaches can make a cell that um, that lives longer or functions in sites that are normally um, uh, hostile to the Treg environment. And so this funding allows our discovery programs to continue, more indications to test out, and having our own manufacturing capability. Where are you putting the manufacturing? Because I, I know you're you're based in South San Francisco. You also have an office in Seattle where Fred Ramsdale is. I think you mentioned. Yeah, and the uh, manufacturing facility is going to be in Bothell. Bothell, Washington. Yes, north of Seattle. Yep. Uh, why there? So it seems that, um, well, you probably know this uh, better than I do, uh, living in the, in the Seattle area. Seattle turns out to be kind of a hub for cell therapy, um, starting with Dendrion and Juno and uh, a, a number of other company. Excite was in Seattle. Um, it's really been a hub for cell therapy. You have Fred Hutch, uh, which is a great academic cell therapy site, Children's Hospital Seattle. 
So one of the values that we had in having a place in, in Seattle is being able to recruit a number of really outstanding people who have a history of cell therapy. And since our translational programs are up in Seattle, it makes logical sense for us to take the next step and build our manufacturing there to interface with our translational medicine program. And we actually, uh, as of today, um, hired our uh, chief uh, technical officer who is going to help us build out that facility in, in Bothell. And so we're really excited about being in that community because it is such a robust cell therapy community. I think this is really interesting. I mean, obviously the talent pool is super important and the thing that I think drives most site location decisions, but also the fact of proximity, that it has that it's close to your translational science people who might be uh, playing around with different kinds of modifications, some of which you mentioned to different cell lines. And, you, you know, you might want to just, you know, throw that over the fence to the guys a half hour away in Bothell to see, you know, can we make that cell line or, or, or can we do it consistently? What does it, what does it do? Um, that having, as opposed to having your, um, your manufacturing, your cell manufacturing facility, you know, on some other continent. Oh, ab absolutely. And in fact, it's even more, I think, more important um, than, than the just throwing it over the fence and trying, which is really, you're right, a big plus. It's also making sure that when you transfer a process that's so critical to the drug from the discovery effort, from the translational effort into the manufacturing facility, that there's somebody there to make sure that that transition goes well. Because so often I have seen things go from a laboratory-based, you know, small product production, throw it to the big manufacturing facility, and they and they forget the, you know, it's that that those little things that don't get written down in the notebook well, and then all of a sudden things don't work. Growing Tregs is hard. This took me 12 years to develop this process. You don't simply throw the process over the fence and expect somebody to do it. So having someplace close, not just helps you try things out, but it helps you ensure that the process transfer is robust and reliable. Well, maybe I'll have to take a visit in Bothell someday on one of your visits there. <laughs> um, you know, um, Jeff, you, one of the issues with cell therapy um, for cancer has been the, um, the high price, the, the difficult logistics, and pretty limited access among patients to this point. I know you must have thought about this, uh, uh, as others have. What are th some things that you're doing today to kind of, you know, set the table for the future with cell therapy for autoimmunity so that maybe... Maybe we don't have a repeat of that story. Yeah, and that's a great question. Something we think about a lot. Um, you know, taking off the shelf, off the table for now, because that may happen and, and it may be years away. I think there's a lot we can do now. First of all, we already know that there are processes that we can put in place that will reduce the costs of making these drugs quite significantly by replacing, you know, human beings with automation, by shortening the time that it takes to isolate and grow up the cells, by making them more effective so that instead of giving you know, billions of cells, you can give hundreds of millions of cells and reduce the cost of goods that way. I think there's a lot we can do to reduce the cost. And remember, people forget this. Humira, which is a drug given to to rheumatoid arthritis patients now can cost $40,000 a year and you have to do it every year for the rest of your life. If we can make a one in done therapy, um, I think we can beat the price of Humira easily. And so um, the economics actually are not so bad for autoimmune disease if you have a great drug that works and that's what we plan to have. And then the last thing I would mention is that I think we have the ability um, to change the way we um, introduce some of the modification of the cells. The, one of the greatest opportunities that CRISPR and the gene editing platforms do is to get rid of a very expensive step in the process, which is the generation of the virus, the lentivirus we need to put the genes edit into the cells. If we can get away from that technology, I think we can also reduce the cost of goods um, quite significantly. The other part of the, the the other part is obviously what we've already talked about is if we can limit the number of times we need to treat somebody to get stable long-term efficacy, 
I think that's going to offset some of the concerns about costs as well, because what people want is they want to have disease-free, healthy lives. And our what we've learned in, in vaccines, what we learned in curative drugs is that if you can cure somebody of a disease, there is nothing more um, powerful to the economics of you know, not having to deal with long-term complications and hospitalizations and, and the associated costs. So I think if we can make something that works, um, the economics will be fine. Looking out, say, 10 or 20 years, um, what do you think that the treatment paradigm is going to look like for, um, for, for autoimmunity? Are, are, are you still going to have a lot of biologics and small molecules uh, in the market? Or, or do you think Treg cell therapies from, from you and some others are, are going to be the prevailing way we treat a lot of these diseases? Yeah, I think that there is um, uh, going to be, I, I would, I'll, I'll not just be very self-interested, but I'll, I'll try to give you my sense of the field. I think gene and cell therapy is the future. And I think we will find ways to utilize the cells in the body as well, not just the cells we take out and put back in, but actually introducing things into cells in the body in targeted ways so that they create their own cell therapy. They're kind of in situ um, cell therapy. I think that's going to be a, a major field um, going forward. And some of the tools in the toolbox now are already starting to, to test that out in, in the cancer setting. Um, but I think a lot of the 20 years from now, I think we're going to be thinking about prevention um, in much more effective ways. You know, getting into a patient with type 1 diabetes, you know, before they're diagnosed, getting into patients who have a susceptibility for Alzheimer's or Parkinson's with a cell therapy that prevents it. So I see that these therapies are not just going to be more efficient and less expensive and even in vivo, but I think they're going to happen before disease starts. Well, um, hopefully uh, we've gained a little more appreciation these last couple of years for the value of preventing disease rather than um, waiting around to treat it when we have an option. <laughs> Jeff Bluestone, thank you so much for joining me on The Long Run. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.